Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi, a cause marketer and activist who's passionate about social impact, sustainability, and regenerating Earth. I have a treat for you today because we're going to talk about all things climate-related and remaining more optimistic. Many of us struggle with remaining optimistic when we're faced with the daunting task of reversing climate change. So through today's conversation and with tools in hand, you'll leave today's discussion with inspiration. I've created a five-step guide to help guide you on your journey to be a climate activist. It's available to our entire community. All you have to do is go to caremorebebetter.com and sign up for our newsletter. You'll receive a welcome email moments later that includes a download link. I'm thrilled to be joined today by the climate optimist herself, Anne-Therese Denari. Anne-Therese has a really interesting history. She is an entrepreneur, a speaker, an educator, and an environmental activist. She's the founder of the Climate Optimist, Role Models Agency, and Hey Change podcast. As an educator and consultant, she helps shift the narrative around climate change so that we can act from courage and excitement instead of fear. Anne-Therese, welcome to the show. Thank you. So happy to be here. I'd love to know a little bit more about your a specific catalyst. Like what really propelled you into action to really move forward for climate change? I feel like it's my life purpose and it's just something that's been so been a big part of me since I was a child. I uh, spent a lot of my childhood roaming around the woods and biking to my nearest little park. I lived in a countryside, but there was this mountain where like I could feel like I was in the wilderness. So I would just be around there for hours and pretend I was, you know, out in the wild on my own. And I loved it so much. So nature's always been a big part of my life. I've always felt very safe in nature. And I guess growing up, I became aware of things fairly early in life. I started to like, I learned things like water shortage and how people in different parts of the world were suffering. And it just didn't sit well with me that I had all these privileges living in a country like Sweden and knowing that other people in other parts of the world didn't. And so that connection kind of clicked for me early on. And then as I grew older, I learned more about the environment and the recycling issue and, you know, the things we should be doing. I became the recycling cop in my family and amongst my friends. There's so many funny stories where I lived with five roommates in Brooklyn and I had to hang, like put up signs to like, this is what goes in here and this is the bin for paper. And they got to a point where they just like would leave things on the counter and say, you know, I left it here for you to like to make sure you sort it the right way because I don't want to mess it up. And I'm like, it's not that hard, you guys. But, you know, so I've just been known, I think, for a majority of my life that it's someone who's just really passionate about climate change or the environment. But I guess it wasn't until I moved to New York City that was I was really introduced to how big and complex this issue is. Because living in the countryside of Sweden in a small town, you know, of course, there's waste and you get introduced to all sorts of things. But living in New York City in the midst of this disposable waste culture that exists there with everyone ordering lunch at lunch hour and takeout at dinner and, you know, just seeing how much waste is consumed and created every single day and every single minute, I was overwhelmed. And I realized that this is about so much more than just me. This is a systemic issue and we have to shift culture. And I just got so deeply 
interested in human psychology and what triggers us. And I, I had chosen a path in marketing actually because I wanted to learn how to work with messaging and and creating art in a way that we can empower people and spark action. But yeah, I don't know. It's hard to pinpoint a moment where like, this is now, now I'm going to work for the environment. I think it's just always been a part of me and I've been trying to pivot my way throughout my whole life. Well, you remind me of myself being the recycling Nazi at every company I've ever been at and also somebody who travels frequently. So I would go with my coffee mug that's my portable coffee mug with me in my suitcase, my water bottle, same thing. And people would be like, really? She's refilling her coffee cup at Pete's Coffee at the airport? Who is this person? It's all tattered. It's like got worn edges everywhere, you know, but again, it serves its purpose. I'm not throwing away plastic and paper every time I get a coffee when I'm out on the road. And so these small steps, these small changes can make a big difference. I also think to all the times I've been in New York City and you just notice people putting garbage literally right on the street. Like there's trash bags on the street in piles. And I think that actually helps us to see the tangible problem that is garbage. Whereas when you live in the suburbs and, you know, you just everything goes in a bin and every week the trash compactor comes through and picks it up, it doesn't really resonate the same way as when you see it just in piles on the street. I mean, granted, they're bagged, but they're these giant plastic bags literally on the street in Manhattan, right? They're in your face. You know, you can't escape from the issue. And I think that's just so important. Absolutely. It's such a stark contrast to many European cities. Like if you go to Berlin, as for example, they will have these really concerted efforts. This is where your compost goes. And this is where you put your glass bottles that end up getting refilled, not recycled. And this is where you put each element of your garbage has a very specific place. They recently actually implemented in San Francisco a composting system where they've been able to reduce trash, household trash, by something like 80% because you separate out your compost. So I wonder, is has something like that happened in New York or is it coming? I don't know if I'm the right person to ask. I wish. I really hope so. I mean, I lived in San Francisco for two years and I was actually just back visiting for a wedding and friends over there and landing SFO, which is the San Francisco International Airport. It's like entering a different world because it's they're just so aware in terms of climate action, I feel. And there are so many systems set up in San Francisco as a city that just don't exist in other parts of America. And, you know, there's composting bins on the airport which I love. And, you know, just being able to live in San Francisco and and separate my food waste into a compost that gets picked up by the, you know, the municipal system. I think that should just exist everywhere, in my opinion. It's such a, I know it's, it's easy to say it's a no brainer. I know there's goes a lot of work was into creating that system. And I know that New York is working towards these kinds of improvements too. They unfortunately got halted because of COVID. Right. Everything. But I was part <laughs> Yeah, I was part of a social campaign. We put some pressure using our social media in the early days of COVID to make sure that not the whole program was just slashed because they wanted to just take it out completely because of budget restraints. But they continue to keep composting at farmers market and different parts of the city. So it's not, it's yet to be a curbside pickup system, but composting does exist in New York if you just, you know, go online and look at where you can drop it off. And I'm hoping that the city will pick up um, the program again and start working towards really implementing this into people's everyday life. Yeah. Now, I've been thinking about something else since listening to a couple of your podcasts. You recently interviewed Zenegi Artist, I believe his name was, from Zero Hour, and I may have butchered the name. I hope he'll Sanaji. forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> we had to ask him too. It's Sanaji. Yeah. Okay. 
So Zanaji Artis from Zero Hour, and he was a teenage activist who really propelled a movement forward and got even some protests happening. So I would love for you to talk about for a moment just the power and the influence of younger generations to really fuel this climate optimism that we're all being tasked to feel, right? Yeah, well, first of all, Sanashi is so amazing. So I highly recommend checking out his episode. He's the founder of Zero Hour, this Zero Hour on social media. And it's a youth organized group. They do marches and just put pressure on governments. And they do a lot of work in DC, because of course, that's where the action is. But something that we talked a lot about actually in our conversation with him is that, yes, I think we, it's what well, we can see that the youth is so needed. It's because of these youth-led mo- movements in the past few years. A lot of it has to do with Greta Thunberg, obviously, and her, her success and her movement with Fridays for Future. We can see how much awareness that has sparked all over the world and that leaders now are really stepping up, which is great. And I think we, we need the, the energy and the passion that the youth brings, sort of like the, I feel like when you were that young, and I can relate to when I was the same age, there is like an all or nothing sort of attitude. Everything is just so clear. It's like, obviously, we have a problem, we need to face it. And then you get older, and you get more and more immersed into the complexity of all the systems. And you start to be like, I don't know, that's never going to happen. And you just start to get more complacent. So I think we need to mix that young energy with the experience and the wisdom of the older population too. And that's something we actually talked a lot about with Sanaji because he was like, no, it's not lost to me that we would not be where we are unless we had collaborated with older people. And so I think this movement is so intersectional, not just in terms of race and background and culture, but also in in age. And there is this collaborative element to it that we cannot overlook, that we need everyone from different ages, from different backgrounds, from different experience and passions, because to solve the climate crisis, we need literally everyone to rethink everything and start new. So yeah, but uh, definitely we, the youth has brought a lot to the table that I think we should definitely recognize and celebrate. Yeah, this lays really nicely with the mini episode that I recorded for Friday. I mean, Monday was Indigenous Peoples Day and not, I don't look at these coincidences, especially unplanned ones as anything but serendipity, right? So I was working through Paul Hawkins' book, which you can see in the background if you're watching this podcast. And sure enough, the chapter I'm covering this week is people. And so we dive right into indigenous people and a lot of youths that are out there really moving and shaking what we need to do, what we need to change, how we might want to change our future and our approach to politics and our approach to activism, really endemic to that episode. So It's really interesting work that a lot of individuals are doing around the globe with regenerative farming, trying to make that more of a mainstay as opposed to, you know, some just budding activistic movement and really bringing that into central frame. So people as activists were all needed and really it's about all of us. And so getting all hands on deck now is critical. Like each of us can make some change happen. And on that note, too, sorry, before you go on, I just want to say, because I think this is really important to know, because, I mean, tuning into this podcast, I'm, I'm assuming that you are somewhat, you know, interested in climate change and climate action. But I think what we all need to remember is that we need people to care. We don't have to care about the same things. So picking your field and what really sparks your passion and work for that. You don't have, everyone, not everyone has to advocate for solar panels. Not everyone has to go out and save the land, like find something that you really burn for and that your community is already active in and join that. And I, but just like, we all need to care more, not just because the world needs to, but because it makes us better people and we live better lives, but also finding something that 
sits right with you and taking off that pressure of having to do it all. Find something that you can champion. That's the other thing. You can't be expert in 100% of the world with regard to climate change. It's, it's a daunting task, right? You can do a little bit in a lot of different areas. Like I personally compost at home. Easy for me because I have land that I can do that on. Not everybody does. When you live in a city that makes it more difficult, you can freeze your compost and participate in a composting program, but that's extra work you have to do. So not everyone is going to do that. But guess what? Refusing a plastic lid on your coffee when you go to a coffee shop, that's fairly easy. There's a lot of little things that you can do. I was actually connecting with Julie Dross Loken, who has a podcast of her own as well. And as we reviewed regeneration.org, and that website is really a treasure trove for anyone who's just trying to find out what they're passionate about or what they can do, because you can literally go into something like fashion and say, oh, these are the bad actors in fashion. And I can email the CEO of Zara and tell them I'm not happy with some of their practices. And maybe if enough of us do these things, it becomes apparent enough that change needs to happen, that we can create that big, more systemic change on a global scale. And that's really what we need, right? So if you're passionate about fashion, check that out, you know? And there are podcasts out there about fashion and sustainability. So you can do that too. Participate in purchase of slow fashion, of natural fibers, as opposed to a bunch of polyester. And then we just keep going one thing after the other. And also as you add on that, I think finding an area of passion where you actually like maybe start getting more involved, then you should pick a cost. The small daily actions that you now, you know, mentioned, it's kind of like just riding the wave of someone else's work. And so, but taking it bite-sized. So if you're new to the game, you know, how can I eliminate plastic in my home and my life? And you start there. But as soon as that becomes a new habit and you start just automatically looking for different products in the store, and it's a no-brainer to turn down a plastic lid in the coffee shop, like the first 10 to 15 times, it's going to have to be a conscious decision, like reminder of like, oh, actually, I don't need the plastic, right? But then it just becomes part of who you are. And that's easy. And then you move on to the next thing. That's exactly what happened to me. I started to become aware of the food industry and started to take out meat and dairy for my diet for that reason. And that was my whole focus for a while. But then that just became you know, easy because I just started buying different things in the store. And then I learned about the fashion industry and I moved on to fashion. So you can you know, keep moving forward and keep adding on and keep growing as a person. But then maybe if there is anything you want to dive deeper into, pick one field so you don't overwhelm yourself. Well, I'll give you an example that is tangible for me and very recent. So I have been working to limit my dairy consumption, reduce, reduce, reduce. I have a son who's allergic to milk anyways. So we get oat milk and I've been frustrated by all the packaging of the oat milk, right? And so I just got to a point where I started making it <laughs> and it's surprisingly easy to make. So you can literally get oatmeal, rolled oats just about anywhere. And guess what? You can get them in fiber. Tins. I mean, they're just like metal and a little bit of cardboard. Get your Quaker Oats or whatever brand. It doesn't really matter, right? And then utilize those. I mean, I'm buying organic and non-GMO, so that's what my input is. And I'm making my own oats now, so I'm not having this extra packaging. And ultimately, I can then use whatever's left over and compost that and put it in my garden. So full circle use, and it's not more junk going to landfill. Packaging is one of the biggest problems I think that we all have. It's, it's like unavoidable when you go to the store and there are certain, let's just say grocery stores that I simply don't go to for that very reason. And I know a lot of single people that absolutely love Trader Joe's, but I walk in and I'm just like, this place is just, it's like packaging 
side to side of the store. I can't deal with it. <laughs> I have certain items that Trader Joe's, like their tahini is amazing and it comes in a glass jar. So, you know, the, I know what I'm looking for in there, but then I go for other, I go to different stores. I'm that weirdo that will kind of pick different places. I want to say kudos to you though. I tried making oat milk uh, last summer. I did a few batches and I guess I just wasn't hitting it right. So if you have like a secret recipe of how to do it, please share because I need to. That's my Achilles heels actually is my non-dairy milk that comes in packaging. And I'm like, I love it in my coffee, but I don't know what else to do. So please share. I will. I will. So there's, I will say I'm using my Vitamix. So I don't know if that makes a huge difference. So I I was using, okay, sorry. I was using an old t-shirt and like squeezing out. (laughs) So, I mean, so it makes maybe sense. I need to upgrade my, my tools a little. <laughs> okay. So there were two things I read about with oat milk. I'll just share it now. One of them is that if you're using a Vitamix or some mixer like that, only blend it for about 30 seconds and you limit how much time and you just turn it right off. And then when you are filtering it, do not be tempted to squeeze it through because it brings out all the bitterness. So if you want your oat milk to remain creamy and taste good and not bitter, then you just have to wait to let it kind of settle through. And then you take whatever's left over and that's the garbage. So it may be a little wetter than it's used to, and then you're used to having it, but it probably will taste a lot better. And then I use actually a maple syrup to flavor it because I like the maple syrup with just a little bit of vanilla. I haven't okay. really refined I'll, it beyond I'll get, that. I'll get back to it. <laughs> but my son loves it. So I'm like, okay, I checked that box and yeah, we're working through it. Amazing. Great. So Let's just get to the root of it. What does it mean to you to be a climate optimist? And how do you remain optimistic when you get some really bad news with regard to the environment, like the recent IPCC report, which was published in August, which is fairly damning and a little bleak, sometimes can feel overwhelming. So I just love your perspective on how you deal with that and ultimately what it means to you. Yeah. Good question. Well, first of all, my mission as a climate optimist is to shift the narrative on climate change so that we can start acting from courage and excitement and not fear. And I think it's important to to mention that because to be a climate optimist is to be on a mission, literally. It's to be on a journey and to understand that this journey is not going to end tomorrow or next week. And so if you sign up for it thinking that this is just something I put in all my effort and then we're done and we're over it, like that's not going to sustain you. And it took me a lot of difficult turns to realize that. And I was what I call an angry activist for a long time, trying to just, you know, shake awareness into people and thinking that I was going to help them understand the, the, you know, the urgency in the matter. And the reality is that people are consumed with so much other information every single day. And I kept asking myself, you know, why is it that we don't get to more action? And I was really curious to just figure that out. So I dove deep into human psychology and read a lot of books on change and how we respond to different kinds of information and coming from a marketing background too. I know that there are certain ways to shape a message where you, if you want people to actually, you know, do something like a call to action, and there's a different way if you just want to have people paralyzed. And the majority of the time that we talk about climate change, we're just paralyzing people. Messages of fear and doom and gloom and sacrifice, although we get afraid, and we might feel like in the moment, like, oh my God, this is so bad. We need to do something. That doesn't translate into actual action. And the more of that messaging that we add on, first of all, we get more and more used to it. So we can actually take on more without feeling as triggered. And at the same time, unless that fear, which is actually a really strong energy and that could be utilized if we do it the right way, but unless that's tied to some sort of action, the opposite happens where we start to, you know, build up inside and we try to like forget about what we just knew because it's too, 
we can't stay in this high level of awareness all the time. We just don't function that way. And we have to at some point go back to everyday life and eat or take care of our kids or whatever it is. And so when we reach that level of fear and we don't have actions tied to it that we can do something with and funnel it into something positive, we're just going to keep storing it inside until it starts consuming us and we get anxious and depressed. And that's why a lot of people today are suffering from climate anxiety and equal depression or whatever term you want to use. It's because we have been continuously, we've been fed this message of doom and gloom and that, you know, we don't have, basically we have no future to look forward to because if we are to believe in the climate science, which I hope that we are, there is no positive outlook basically. So the question again, which is what you just asked me, how do you stay optimistic in this? How are you a climate optimist? And it took me many years to realize that I can't choose optimism. Just telling myself like, I want to be optimistic and I'm going to keep looking for reasons to be optimistic and, you know, hold on really tight to those few climate optimistic news out there because every now and then you will see something positive but they're not enough and they will get you know overwhelmed by everything that's negative and so if you only fuel your optimism from looking around yourself in the world to give you that uh, input you will fail and you will start feeling more and more anxious and i've been there in very deep ways and so i realized in order to be optimistic we have to create optimism we have to be optimists and so what does that look like it looks like but first of all, getting to action, the fastest way to pull yourself out of anxiety is to do anything. And here's when the magic comes in, because as soon as you start doing things and actively empowering yourself as a leader, however big or small that is for you, you start to create what I call happiness hormones. And so you produce dopamine and serotonin and oxytocin. Oxytocin actually is produced when you do things with others. So that is why community action is so important because you feel like you belong to something. And the more this we do on a daily basis, we will fuel happiness hormones. And these happiness hormones make us feel better. And the better we feel, the more optimistic we are. It's just literally just, it's a hormone in our body that makes us feel more optimistic. And the reason that's important is because we need an optimistic mindset and framework in order to be creative and solutions thinking. In order to solve these issues or these issues, we should probably say, because climate change proposes so many different challenges, not just one. And so in order to figure this out, we need to stay open-minded and to rethink everything and to be, you know, curious enough to ask ourselves, what else is out there? What else could we do? How can we live life differently? How can we create society differently in a different way and live better lives? And so for me to be an optimist is to every single day, wake up and say, what can I do today? You know, what is something we can do to rethink the system, to just do something differently and to continue to show up for that? And that doesn't mean that I am not worried about the future. I'm terrified sometimes. I allow myself to have those days and allow myself to express that to others. I think we have to really talk about that and to show others that it's okay to not always know the answers because we don't know the answers and to kind of find comfort in that. But the more we start talking about it and we realize, well, there are others out there that also don't know what we're doing. And maybe if we are enough people not knowing what we're doing, we can actually come together and figure something out. And so I think it's taking away pressure of feeling like, okay, we need to act now or else we're doomed because that doesn't lead to anything. And to give ourselves the space to say, oh, this sucks. This is really bad. That makes me feel awful. And you can journal on that. I really highly recommend journaling uh, or talking about it to someone. And then the second thing is, okay, well, what can I do? A small thing. What can I do today? What? Yeah. Now what exactly? And so, yeah, that's what climate optimism is for me. In another recent episode of your podcast, you interviewed Per Epson Stokness, and I really enjoyed how he laid out how that negativity is completely counterproductive to inspiring people to act. So I wondered if you could give us the highlights of that conversation and why you really look to him 
for uh, his work and his book on the subject. Yeah, I will actually share this because this is really interesting. I had um, come to very similar conclusions in my own thinking. I go up, I hike and I go to a mountaintop and I just sit and things come to me. And I had kind of figured out like, wow, there is something here that doesn't like there's, we're not acting on it the right way. And I kind of came up with this framework of like, well, you know, there's fear-based change that we're trying to, you know, evoke change right now by, you know, trying to push this fear on people, but that's not going to work. So we have to move to positively incentivized change where instead of avoiding an anti-goal, so to speak, we're working towards a goal we want to reach. And so in that, I'm like, okay, I feel like I'm onto something here. I feel like I figured something out. But I'm not sure because I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not, you know, I don't have a professional background in this. I'm just literally someone who just, you know, kind of grabbed this thought from the air. And I've, in researching, you know, my thesis, basically, I found this book, which is called What We Think About When We Try Not to Think About Global Warming. And it caught my eye, obviously, because I'm like, this title just speaks to everything I believe. And I had to order the book and I read the book and literally like underlined everything. And took notes and started implementing everything. He said, I'm like, this is it. Like, yes, this is exactly what I'm talking about. And so I started sharing a lot of his work in, on my Instagram and I started tagging him. So that's how we got connected. And then finally I was like, Pear, I would love to have you on my podcast. And so we figured that out um, and he come, came to my podcast and we got a chance to nerd out like big time. And what he talked about is what he calls the five Ds, which is the five barriers to climate action. And they are distance, doom, dissonance, denial and identity. And basically it's how we are framing the, the conversation around climate change. We talk about, well, we, we, it feels distance to us in many different ways. I'm not going to try it. I'm not going to get into detail in all these different ones, but the well, distance you can go and listen that, to the show. It's a really good, yeah, they listen to the show because we do go into details. But it, is, basically, it is a little nerdy, but it's perfect in so many <laughs> ways. So if you're nerdy, this is your episode. Yeah, um, exactly. What you learn is that there are many different psychological reasons to why we're not acting on climate change. And the big one is that it feels too distant to us on a, on a psychological and level even. And in understanding these barriers, we can also gain a better understanding for what can we do to shift this narrative and actually do more. So highly recommend checking out that episode. Yeah. Well, one of the things that spoke to me was specific to the climate deniers, because I felt like, how does somebody get to the point where they just are completely discarding all of the science and all of the evidence and everything that is in front of them. And it really starts with that sense of overwhelm earlier on that then led to them kind of shutting down. Because the thing that happens to all of us, if we're being propelled into fear, then we're controlled in a way. I mean, this is the same way that religion and government also seek to control us. And we could get into a really deep conversation about how politics does that. But the reality is that you are then you start to get more insular and more tribal. So people, instead of expanding out, contract and their family units become the thing that matters more. And then everything else is outside or other. And when we get to that space of othering, we become more separate as opposed to a cohesive group and, and unit. So, I mean, it's all there. It's in the roots of psychology, evolution, <laughs> Um, you know, my background before in undergrad was all anthropology and human evolution. And so it's like, that's the thing that I geeked out on for days and days. And it all made sense to me, just logically speaking, given that frame of reference. Wow. Okay. No, it's I'm, I'm glad we're geeking out here together. <laughs> it's, it's good things to geek out on. And I think bottom line here is that this is a human issue, right? It's bringing it back to ourselves and to anyone who's listening to 
give ourselves that break in that space. And something that I keep coming back to in a lot of my interviews on Hey Change podcast, but also just in conversations with friends and colleagues, it's that we need to do less. Honestly, I know we feel like, what can we do? We need to do more. And yes, we do need to act 100%. But part of that act and that action is actually to do less because it's when we slow down and create space, that's when the answers come to us. And I think what we will realize is that we already know a lot. We already know a lot of the things that we need to be doing. And we have so much more value in just being instead of always chasing something new. So yeah, I would say I'm trying to remind myself just doing less and breathing more and creating more quality in whatever we are doing in the here and now. Yeah, this is a constant theme in my recent life. In fact, the podcast episode that I have that released today with Scott Perry, he talks about doing less. We talked about the fact that when you start to do something like a podcast and you have a little bit of success, then suddenly it feels like you have to be everywhere all at once. So you have to be on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube, and you have to be on Pinterest and Clubhouse. And and before you know it, your attention is spent divorced between 10 different platforms. You're trying to make all of them sing and you're overwhelmed, you're less effective. And so one of the things that he did was pare it all down to two. And he said, these are my two social platforms. And if you want my content, then that's where you go. And they're the ones that make sense for me. And that's it. And I was just like, wow, that's refreshing. So <laughs> perhaps so telling me I don't thing. have to get on TikTok because I would love that. <laughs> I keep feeling like I need to get on TikTok, but I just don't have the time. (laughs) No, I was told the same thing last week. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm not doing it now. That's for sure. Maybe one day. Yeah. And I wanted to speak about something else a little bit ago. This is relational to the many business trips I've been on. Trade shows are one of the most wasteful industries that there are. I mean, the amount of waste that is generated at not only through the business travel, but also at the hotels and at the conference centers and is kind of ridiculous. And so over the course of the last couple of years, many of us have not gone to as many trade shows or many as many events because of the fact that they simply haven't been happening, right? But now trade shows are also getting a lot greener. They're doing things like not rolling out carpets in certain halls. And each of these things has an impact. So I wondered what your thoughts are about where we're headed and how we might want to architect or change how we're interfacing when we come to these in-person meetings versus what we're doing in the virtual space, which frankly also has an ecological impact. Yeah. And you kind of brought in the tech issue here of everything, yeah, right? Tech, um, tech is it's like so hard. Tech is also kind of wasteful. And there's a lot of energy that goes into all these data systems, which is another reason to maybe not having to be on every platform and creating extra content. But yeah. Good question. I feel like I'm feeling the same. I feel like we are, you know, easing back into some sort of normalcy, whatever that looks like or mean. But I think people come at it with a new lens now and a a different sense of awareness, I guess. And I think something that we should all take with us is that compared to pre-COVID times, when I think it was just kind of taboo to speak up too much and like you just like accept things what they are. I know they're awful. Like, yeah, it's a lot of ways. Just like, you know, kind of don't look at it and try not to acknowledge it. Like don't get too frustrated basically. Right. But now it feels like, I think there's just this opportunity to, if we do see something that could be better to just speak up and it doesn't have to be hating with shaming because, you know, someone is putting on an event, they already have so many things to care about. Right. But like, just kind of nudging, like, oh, I'm I see here that you're using paper cups or plastic cups. You know, I know about this awesome company that actually rents cups and they will pick it up for you and dishwash them for you afterwards. You know, like just plugging those thoughts. If you do attend something, 
and just share thoughts and ideas about how things can get better. And I think it's that collaborative space that we need to move into more and more. It's like, you know, it's not about pointing fingers and shaming one another and cancel culture here and cancel culture there. It's about like, okay, I acknowledge you for the work you're doing. Here's how I think you can do even better. And I would love to share my thoughts and inputs on that. But yeah, I think just staying staying aware and also in like not jumping on every opportunity just because you do get invited. Like, could you attend virtually? Does it make sense for you to travel to go to this one thing? And just pick and choose, you know, like we don't have to go to everything. And and yeah, that will, you know, provide some FOMO from time to time. But I think as we get over the FOMO and we realize, well, if I do go to everything, I'm missing out on my own life instead. And yeah, I hope that's what we're moving into now. Well, I will say I am leaving on my first business-oriented trip since COVID hit. I'm going to She Podcast Live. I'm leaving tomorrow. And that is a flight to Arizona. But again, one out of how many years now? I did also get recently invited to a retreat in Costa Rica. So I started looking at flights and I wanted to bring up a tool that I didn't know about until yesterday. So flights.google.com I've used many times, but recently they added a new feature and that is it's a carbon calculator. And so you can go to literally flights.google.com, type in the destinations you want to go and it will sort them. You can sort it any number of ways, but also by its carbon footprint. And so I am going to use that tool to decide which flights I might take, which I think, I mean, it's just becoming more mainstream. So as this becomes more mainstream, then we have access, we have knowledge, we have the ability to make an informed decision. Paul Hawken and the regeneration team are asking people to buy carbon offsets of two to three times what you're generating, which I think is smart because heck, you know, the one big tree that got cut down is replaced by a few saplings, it's going to take a while for those saplings to be able to produce the oxygen that that oak once did to sequester the carbon that that oak once did. So one for one isn't always exactly right. No, it isn't. And also, we have to recognize that we are so past, you know, just sustainable. That's why regeneration is so important, because we need to regenerate and, and give back more than what we're taking or what we're taking currently, because we already surpassed that line of like equality or whatever. So yeah, I love that. I, th- I was so thrilled when I learned those news from Google. So yeah, do you know when that occurred? Because I just noticed it yesterday. I hadn't looked for flights in so long. So yeah, my husband shared an article with me, I think last week when they announced these news, they have a few different ways. Also, like I think we take public like, I think Google Maps have service as well, where they can calculate the best eco, you know, lowest carbon footprint kind of route to get to where you want to go. So stuff like that, too, which is really cool. Yeah, that is really cool. Wow. So let's talk for a moment about the power of mobilizing and finding community so people can get this loop of optimism kind of working for them, all the feel-good hormones like the oxytocin and the serotonin just kicking into overdrive and making them happier. I know there are many protests happening around the globe. So there are events where people can physically go. But even if there's just community resources that you would recommend, I know that you also have a community that you host. So let's talk about that for a moment. Yeah, I want to start with just saying that we shouldn't overlook how powerful communities are. And I think it's becoming more evident to to many people, but it might look silly to just look at these signs and teenagers marching and like, yeah, well, it's all good. And you get to get your photo opportunities and post on social media. And I mean, I've been to these marches. Sometimes you're like, what is this going to lead to? Right. (laughs) But on that day, you are so high. Like I talked about this with Sanashi as well. Like it doesn't compare to many other things. You're like, I feel like I'm on cloud nine. Like I feel like a superhuman right now because just the adrenaline about from being around people who really care about what you care about 
and to march together with people. I mean, if you go back in history and look at culture, every time you, there's been any movement, people have been chanting and singing and dancing together because there is power in that collective movement and singing and chanting. And so that for itself, even if you just join a local march or protest only to fuel your own feel-good hormones, I think that's a great start. And I talk a lot about activism and especially in mobilizing or doing it in community with others in my Climate Optimist class as a way of self-sustainable activism. And I say that because we it's so easy to feel alone. It's so easy to feel like, well, I do want to change the world, but no one else cares as much as I do, or even if they do, how do I connect? Or you might just lose yourself in despair because there is so much negative news out there. And for me, a community is just someone else. It's just a reminder for me that there are other people out there. I'm not alone. And on the days when you are not as high and you don't feel as motivated because we can't change the world every single day, just a reminder that there's someone else out there doing it for you that day. You know, like I see that it as a road trip where if we pack the car with friends, we can take times driving and take naps and chill because that's really important too. But yeah, I mean, you don't, you don't have to necessarily mobilize if you are someone who like finds a lot of joy in being a leader and, and activating people, then definitely find a way how you can mobilize. It can be something as simple as, I know this wonderful young woman, Sharona, she is originally from Portland, but she started with another girl Tuesdays for trash and literally just every single Tuesday they ask their community and their their social following to pick up trash in the communities. And it's very simple. You know, it's something everyone can do. So it doesn't have to be complicated. It's just like, what can we do? And how can I invite others to do this with me? And that's also very important to recognize is we can't just continue to tell people how bad things are and how everything is wrong in the world. We have to provide solutions because when they feel like they can be part of something good, that's when you invite them onto this journey. So for me, community work and mobilizing in whatever capacity you want to do that, it's for me to fuel my happiness hormones. And it's my fuel to my electrical vehicle on this journey of climate optimism. And the oxytocin part is really important because it's a bonding hormone. It's something that mothers, for example, have a lot of when they just have a baby because they need to bond with their baby. But when we do things with others, if that's dancing or singing or hugging or like even eye gazing, which is one of my favorite, like if you eye gaze with someone, you will start produce, to produce um, oxytocin. And it's just this. Well, be careful. Of, you know, um, there's being... scientific research that shows if you stare in somebody's eyes long enough, you will basically fall in love with them. <laughs> okay. Don't do this too, too much if you're like already committed like I am. Yeah, um, yeah. No, <laughs> it's, just, it's interesting. It's like a, the power of connection between people related to our eyes is so huge and it cannot be understated. That's where I feel like the Zoom lifestyle isn't 100% of what human connection should be. So, But, you know, eye gazing can be done in a socially safe distance. You know, maybe That's it's more true. powerful if you're close to someone, but you can wear a mask and you can just look into each other's eyes and you will start to fuel up your own engine and be able to do more work. So for me, it's like, of course, doing things with others, that's going to, you know, ripple effect and we'll create a much bigger movement and we'll have a much bigger impact in numbers. Like that's the number one obvious reason. But also for me, it's just a way for me to feel better and to continue to show up for the work and to not get burnt out and to find support. And I think that's really, really important. Well, great. That Trash for Tuesday sounds like that would be a very easy hashtag campaign to get going in every community. So I think I might try that myself. Do a Trash for Tuesdays hashtag and see what I can generate. So yeah, I think their hashtag is Tuesdays for Trash. So please use that. They Tuesdays will be really happy. for Trash. Awesome. I love that. 
Well, I also have a five-step tool that I created, which anybody who joins my mailing list, just go to caremorebebetter.com, you can receive, which does include many of the thoughts that you have already shared with us today, Antares, community being one of them, like finding an accountability partner, an activist partner to just be in it with you, even if they're not in the same space, because that can mean that you then just have somebody to collaborate with. And the power of collaboration should not be understated. I'll also mention this. David Johnson, when I interviewed him, he's a Stanford professor. He also just said, look, if you're ever seeking to get motivated, just show up at a march. It's so powerful. You'll leave just feeling like you're on cloud nine and motivated to make the change that you want to see. So I love that. What I wanted to ask as we prepare to wrap up here, since you're the climate optimist, I would like for you to share with us your vision of what the future will be by the time that you're old and gray, which I know is quite a few years now in the future. But let's just say, you know, this is your swan song. It might be your last decade on Earth. What does it look like? What is the optimistic world that we have created? I smile when I get this question because it's one of my favorite questions. We are in for such a beautiful future that you can't even imagine. Cities will be so lush and so full of life and quiet in one sense because all the industrial noise is gone, but so loud in other ways because there's so much people and music and art and, you know, um, porcelain clinging and birdsong. And for me, it's just a way to rethink everything. And I think it's hard to imagine that future today because it's unlike everything, anything we've ever seen. But it's a future where we commute less because we don't have to. And so when we do commute, we use public transportation, which are really fast electrical trains. They're quiet. And all the highways have been redesigned to as pathways, as gardens, you know, food is not transported around the world anymore because we have a mix of old style um, regenerative agriculture mixed in with new technology and how to grow food in a sustainable way inside the city landscape. And I think it's important to give ourselves permission to think of a world that's much better than today. It's not just about sustaining what we already have, but it's about rethinking, regenerating, renewing everything that we know and also renewing our hope for the future and to allow ourselves to believe that things can be and get even better because it's not just about avoiding a climate disaster it's about inviting climate thriving future and world and so when i think of the future when i'm gray and old and hopefully I have more energy then than now because i just feel like that's just how my my life trajectory is going to look like i will step out and just smile and i have this weird vision that in the future, when you meet people, there's a whole different kind of energy and exchange between people. Like there's this energy that you can feel and you can see it in people's eyes that just don't exist today because we are so distracted and consumed by things that actually just pull us further apart. And I think everything is about change. I think right now it's easy to feel as if everything is crumbling apart because it is. The world as we know it is falling apart, but we have to let it because we have to realize and remember that the world we built is not working. And so let it fall, let it crumble, and then come back or in the midst of all this craziness, how can we see ourselves in the womb that actually we are about to be reborn and life on the other side is going to be much more beautiful than anything we've ever seen. End on saying, I do want to end on that very optimistic note, obviously, but that's something that I really do want to mention often is that we have to remember that things for the next decade or so will get worse. It's inevitable. We already have reached thresholds where there's no going back. Even if we were to stop climate change tomorrow, there's a lag. And so we 
are going to have to keep showing up for the work and the commitment and the passion and the optimism while things are getting worse. And I say this because we cannot give up hope and we're not going to get the evidence right away that things are working. Things will get like we can be working towards a much better world and it's going to look like we're not like at least the first few years or the first decade or so. But that's why we need community to keep reminding ourselves and each other that, no, we are heading in the right way. We need to keep showing up and keep asking the right questions. And we have to keep believing that that future is possible. I completely agree. And I want to share something from my own personal experience when COVID first hit. So if you think about the fact that suddenly everybody stopped driving, uh, the airplanes weren't even in the sky. Like I didn't hear the airplane noise. Animals started coming back into spaces where they hadn't been for a while. There's cougars wandering the streets in Santa Cruz County. And, you know, all of this energy that we had been spending through driving around, everything else had gone kind of into the home. We'd become more insular. But one of the things I noticed, because I go on hikes every single day myself, is that the air was cleaner, there was less noise, animals were becoming more present in every space I went into, and the clouds were fluffier, the sky was bluer. I mean, it was obvious that the change was happening right now. And if we can find these small wins along the way, if we can look at our air quality index along the way and say, oh, well, you know, we changed these six things and these industries have been impacted, but look at what the air quality is looking like and look at how the carbon being emitted into our atmosphere has plummeted. You know, you can start to keep that motivation kind of chugging, chugging along so that you don't lose sight of the end goal and the paradise that you could work to create. And thank you for that, too, because I feel like I haven't really said that. Of course, we need to seek out the, the climate optimist news because there are many so that we can, you know, remember that things are actually happening. And sometimes they're small and they might be few and far between in some cases. But, you know, you can find the wins and you have to celebrate the wins. I mean, solar are now 99 percent cheaper than they were four decades ago. Solar panels. That's crazy right there. Crazy. So, yeah, things are happening. Well, thank you so much, Anne-Therese, for joining me today. This has been simply a joy. I loved listening to your podcast and this conversation was really fun too. So we'll just have to keep connected and perhaps someday I'll come on your show. I would love to have you. Thank you, Corinna. This has been so much fun and uh, thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much, Anne-Therese. So I will include links for how you can find Anne-Therese and all of her work, including the Climate Optimist website the course that she's running, as well as her podcast, which I have to say I love. So it's always nice to find another one that I really enjoy listening to, put it in my listening queue, and perhaps even find another future guest I want to interview on this show as well. So at this point, I'd like to invite everyone to act. It doesn't have to be huge. It doesn't have to feel like it's a huge effort or some mighty task like climbing Mount Everest. It could be as simple as just sharing this podcast with somebody in your community that you think needs to hear the message that we're talking about today. And if you're itching to become a more effective activist, you can go ahead and go to caremorebebetter.com, sign up for my newsletter, and you'll get a download link right away to that key tool, five steps to unleash your inner activist. Thank you listeners now and always for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can care more and we can be better. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. 
and share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good.